0: You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process.
1: U.S. Investment Bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once-in-a-generation vote. a global vote. financial crisis.
0: But I believe we have voted today for the next generation.
1: Don't be rude. Welcome to the Dublin Non Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political and legal developments. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via at Dublin LPR. Welcome everyone, my name is Shauna Bannamore and with me today is Barry Finnegan, a Senior Lecturer of Journalism and Media Communications at Griffith College. We will discuss with him CETA, the Comprehensive Economic Trade Agreement between the EU and Canada, and more specifically, the investor court system within the agreement. Hi Barry, thanks for coming on to the show, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners?
0: Thank you Shauna, my name is Barry Finnegan, I'm a Programme Director and Lecturer at the Media Faculty in Griffith College. I've been researching the area of EU trade and EU trade policy and the transformations to it um, since the Amsterdam, Nice and Lisbon treaties. I have presented my research at Aeroctus uh, European Affairs Committees. I've debated um, people like the uh, head of the US Chamber of Commerce and, um, and, and various other pundits and, uh, and actors around, uh, around the country um i'm also a member of uh, as a volunteer working with the um colov trade justice group and um i'm speaking here today as a as a, as a researcher academically and as a member of the uh, of the colov trade justice group and in september i'm starting a phd on the subject of um critiquing eu trade policy in the anthropocene and um demonstrating I believe my research will show that it is not fit for purpose uh, given the uh, cataclysmic environmental disasters that are about to befall us over the coming decades.
1: So in today's podcast, we're going to speak about CETA and more specifically, the investor court system within CETA. So CETA is the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement between Ireland, or well, EU and Canada. So can you explain a bit about CETA and maybe give our listeners an idea of what it is and what it Sure. Means?
0: Starting in the early mid-90s, there was a move at a global level by stakeholders at a governmental and corporate level to promote global trade and the harmonization of global trade and efficiency with what began to be called uh, mega-regional trade trade agreements. And so the idea was, in order to improve efficiency of global trade and to protect investment in third countries, that aspects of global trade would be removed from oversight by the democratically, democratically elected national parliaments of these member states. And so the first one in that regard was the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and the opposition to that by uh, human rights groups, uh, trade unions, academics, and of course Indigenous Indians and and people and uh, Machidora trade union workers throughout South America and Central America, and indeed people of my vintage will of course remember the revolution launched by the Zapatistas in Chiapas in Mexico, which began uh, inverted commas the global anti-globalisation movement, which was actually the global anti-corporate movement and you must remember that the idea of removing oversight of trade from national parliamentary oversight was very much uh, a key component of the word globalization and so one of the reasons you had these huge protests uh, with three four five hundred thousand people at um, World Bank International Monetary Fund and World Trade Organization meetings in the 90s and early mid early 2000s was specifically because of a rising consciousness of this um this uh, neutering of the democratic process the uh, comprehensive economic and trade agreement between the european union and canada very much fits into this um, this historical transformationary shift in the approach to global trade efficiency i just mentioned one aspect of the CETA, the text of it before we move on to the investment protection aspect of it what it does is is this particular agreement establishes 12 joint committees and these committees then um, are going to uh, are in the process now of analysing and um, assessing pretty much all aspects of human life to fit into these 12 categories. And um, so what happens is, is there's full time civil servants from Brussels, from the European Union and from uh, Ottawa and Canada. And they are full time uh, civil servants working on these committees. So sanitary and phytosanitary measures, intellectual property rights. Regulation of health and safety in the workplace, you name it, all aspects of human life are covered. So they then invite uh, stakeholders to come and give presentations to the committee in private. The agendas of the meetings aren't published and the attendees at the meetings are not published in order to improve efficiency and privacy of the depositions made. And so these stakeholders, by and large, are large internationally active corporations, usually with a global turnover of more than a billion euro a year. And so What these uh, companies do, uh, we've had a few leaked minutes and we've had a few leaked agendas. And as predicted by uh, human rights groups and academics, what happens is, is the corporation identifies a particular regulation that they see as an unnecessarily restrictive and overly burdensome barrier to trade. They beseech the committee to please remove this barrier to trade. It could be a health and safety recommendation. It could be a chemical that's banned. It could be a production process that's banned, for example. And then the committee will assess, the civil servants will assess the, the request of the corporation and make their recommendations to the European Commission in Brussels and to the Canadian government. If the Canadian government says this is a great change, let's do this. And the European Commission says this is a great idea. Let's, for example, reduce the amount of testing that we do for endocrine disrupting chemicals in agricultural fertilizers and pesticides, for example where the efficiency and uh, rationalism comes in is that while there is pounds, shillings and pence and details in an EU directive and regulations that govern, for example, endocrine-disrupting chemicals being added to agricultural produce, this has been approved by the European Parliament and by the Council of Ministers at the Brussels level. So the Council of Ministers in Brussels and the European Parliament They have already given their approval of the imposition of this new democratic structure and they've given their assent to the regulatory cooperation councils. The Commission is then, has been given the power to change the details of EU regulations, directives, etc., without recourse to the Council of Ministers or the European Parliament. And this is a boon for the biggest players in the biggest industries around around Europe and in Canada as well. Okay, and in that context, given that the European Commission can then accede to changes in EU regulations and EU directives without recourse to getting permission from the Council of Ministers and the European Parliament, you can understand how at an intellectual, emotional and self-preservationary level, a lot of European citizens and indeed Canadians are opposed to this. Another aspect that one has to grasp here is that you know, in the same way that a lot of reasonably well-read people we're willing to accede to the transformation in EU trade policy in terms of the exclusion of member states. So by approving Amsterdam, Nice and Lisbon treaties over the years, we now have the legal situation where there's no role to play for national parliaments in the creation of the mandate to initiate a trade agreement, in the negotiating of the trade agreement, and in the ratification and final approval of the trade agreement. That is completely controlled now by the European Commission, the Council of Ministers, as in the 27 ministers for trade, saying their bit at the the Council of Ministers meeting in Brussels, and those in the European Parliament. The one aspect that the Member State Parliaments do have control over is foreign direct investment portfolios, um, which is a massively complex thing we could do another talk on another day (laughs) if there was anyone left still listening but what's of interest to us here now bizarrely is investment protection and 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 the European Court of Justice, or the Court of Justice of the European Union, depending whether you like a three or four-letter acronym, has said that, in effect, the reality is is that the European Union cannot sign the whole union up to an investor-state dispute settlement mechanism, known now for marketing purposes as as an investor court system, without the approval of unanimous approval of all 27 member states. But the other aspect is, is that in the same way that people were willing to turn a blind eye to the diminution of democratic oversight by national parliaments in this quest for European efficiency in trade negotiating strategy and approval with Nice, Amsterdam and Lisbon is because of the geopolitical reality. And so a lot of what are generally referred to as, you know, people who would see themselves as liberals politically, you know, effectively they are essentially left-wing on uh, sexual social issues and right-wing on economic issues. The liberals, as we say, the dominant center of mainstream European politics are willing to give up, you know, little small minutiae of, of, of aspects of, of political life uh, as, as part of a process of building a greater Europe that's got massive industrial champions that can take on China, Russia and, and, and America. Um, and of course, I would take an alternative view. I believe that it is by moving forward slowly together with the democratic transparency that we can build, continue to build the greatest country in the world, the European Union.
1: So if we were to talk on more a domestic level then when it comes to Ireland, there's obviously been a lot of controversy around CETA for a number of years, but especially recently with debates and votes on CETA and more specifically the investor court system aspect of CETA. Can you kind of delve in deeper about what's happening within the Dáil with CETA and ICS?
0: Sure. First of all, we have to remember that ICS, investor court system, as a phrase, appears nowhere in the CETA agreement. It was invented by the European Commission marketing department to make it appear as if there'd been changes. What it does refer to is a mechanism, an investor versus state dispute resolution mechanism, which is a type of international arbitration. Now, given that Ireland is one of the world's leaders uh, for our small size in business to business arbitration, and your listeners may well be familiar with that process where either in the terms of a contract between two parties, you agree and see you agree in the terms of the contract to accede to the rulings of an arbitrator should there be a dispute between the two parties or this is absent from the contract and a, and a dispute arises, you then appoint a third party to act as arbitrator and willingly, willingly both come to the table with equal uh, hands, power and clean hands and say, um, we're both willing to agree. Now, unfortunately. This is business to business or uh, investor to investor arbitration investor versus state arbitration or investor versus state dispute resolution mechanism is an entirely different process that actually gives arbitration which i think is a very good name and rightly so it actually gives it a bad name so this is the way it works back in the 19 late 1950s as ex-colonial countries became independent european colonial powers were left with the awkward situation that goodness me if this african or asian country has now got independence what happens our investors and our businesses that have spent a number of decades extracting the zinc or gold or copper or trees or oil or uh, whatever it is that we've been busy extracting it's going to be really bad for the dutch european british economy and so they came up with this rather rather amazing little system where they said that the country they were leaving listen we're going to do a little trade deal here oh it'll be great let's state trading partners but listen if any law or rule that you introduce in the future now we're not suggesting you don't have the right to regulate you're a new sovereign government off you go if any rule or law or regulation or licensing decision in any way impacts the flow of annual profit to one of our private companies our private company will sue you in private for all future unearned profit. And so you can understand why this might be sensible if you were going to invest 100 million in a new factory in a country that just finished a civil war last year. And you can understand why, if you believed in democracy, you might limit it to maybe five or 10 years. The other thing then is that if you're really afraid that your assets are going to be expropriated by a foreign government, maybe you should go and take out political risk insurance. And if the private sector market isn't prepared to give you political risk insurance of the risk of the big bad nasty foreign government stealing your or expropriating your resources, you really have to think: Is this a good investment for you? And so that's the history of investor-state dispute settlement. It's only in the la- really in the last fifteen years, fifty percent of all the cases since 1957 have taken place. And so what we've got is we've got five to eight really large globally active law firms who each employ thousands of people who've realized that there's a nice few ball with it and what they've spent the last 15 years doing is approaching globally active companies and showing them the sub clauses of international trade agreements that their country that they're based in has signed up to and said no win no fee you see the way that you didn't get the license to mine for gold here in el salvador Yeah, great. Well, you know what? I think that you had a legitimate expectation to get that because you spent a half a million on marketing and advertising and administrative costs. The government didn't tell you to stop doing it. So therefore you had a legitimate expectation to believe that in the future you would get the license. You were going to make 10 million a year out of the gold mine for 20 years. So you're owed every penny right here, right now. And the nice thing about it as well, for people who have difficulty understanding is, you know, why aren't governments nicer? Why don't governments implement their democratic mandate why doesn't the world change for the better quicker one of the main reasons apart from eh, human greed and whatnot and corruption one of the main reasons is because you get the power with your socially progressive government you realize oh my goodness (laughs) if we actually follow through with this promise we're going to bankrupt the entire country and so if you want to join the european union one of the caveats is that you have to promise sign up to basically the courts in your country when you join the european union Will be can be used by any investor anywhere in the world to seek resolution of any arbitration award in any investor-state dispute settlement mechanism from anywhere in the world. Okay, and so there's we could we could talk about the 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 process of that. So there's about two thousand four hundred of these investor-versus-state dispute resolution mechanisms, and so the hue and cry about it is is that in up until two thousand sixteen, the European Commission was utterly and completely convinced and in its press releases and on its website the ratification of the investor state dispute settlement chapter eight in the CETA agreement is the sole exclusive competence of the european union and we will not be going on bended knee asking for democratic approval of this process from the member state parliaments go on out of that and so unfortunately for them they were wrong and the european court of justice so the court of justice of the european union said actually the establishment of tribunal of arbitration o to adjudicate when an investor has a dispute with a member state or the union itself is actually the exclusive competence of the member state parliament and so this is the sole and only reason why this has come up in the for debate in in the dole and so the commission cannot sign off on the investor state dispute settlement component of the CETA until all 27 member states have approved it and so it's intellectually dishonest to link the ongoing debate to anything to do with volumes of trade in goods and services between the EU and Canada. Now your listeners will no doubt be uh, delighted to hear that the German Association of Judges and the European Association of Judges have both expressed their disapproval of the entire apparatus of the, as we will now call it, for the sake of argument and to stop, to lower the tension levels, we'll just use the marketing terminology designed by the European Commission, the investor court system. And let's just use that expression. And so these two groups of judges have said that if we do agree to the establishment of this ICS, investor court system, it basically means that we're saying that the courts of member states and the court of the European Union is not fit for purpose. And what the German judges say in particular about that is that this perspective lacks factual accuracy. So if expert legal opinion is agreed that there are no instances when the investments of Canadian investors, their, their rights will be rid roughshod over by the Irish High Court or the Court of Justice of the Human Un- European Union. What's astounding here, Shauna, is that no one in the commission no one in Fine Gael, no one in the Department of Foreign Affairs and no academics have ever been able to provide evidence to demonstrate why we need to establish the investor court system. There are no examples of Irish or European judges riding roughshod over the interests of foreign investors. To add salt to the wound of the intellectual dishonesty that this entire apparatus represents is that to join the European Union, you must. your country must promise to never distinguish or discriminate against a non-EU investor over and above businesses from your own country or from any EU country. So the judges are agreed it's not necessary. The legal structure of the European Union makes it illegal to discriminate against Canadian investors. So you have to ask yourself, what on earth are we doing establishing this court? And I'll tell you why. Because you have to be suspicious as to why an investor would feel that the Irish or European courts won't give them good remedy. And I'll tell you why. Let's take the example of asbestos. Everybody knows it causes disease and kills people. So many years ago, governments in Europe said, yeah, uh, hi there. Yeah. Mr. And Mrs. Asbestos factory owner. You know what you're going to do. You got to close that down now in two or three years. And what we're going to do is how much did you spend? How much? You, yeah. Okay. So we're going to compensate you for your plant machinery and out-of-pocket expenses and advertising and marketing and administration. And if you've got a problem with the amount that we're awarding you to force you for the public good to shut down your factory and cease and desist from making asbestos, if you've got a problem with the amount that we're going to give you in compensation, go to the high court. So the investor goes to the high court. And what the judge does is on the one hand, he or she has the duty. To make sure that there's a thriving capitalist economy with genuine competition taking place and that investors and uh, landowners and patent owners do not have their rights expropriated by a state arbitrarily. Simultaneously, the judges have the duty to impose not just the letter, but the spirit of the constitution and the spirit of democracy. And the spirit of democracy and the letter of the constitution dictates that the state has a duty to protect the health and safety of citizens. And so what the judge then has to do is go, the state is obliged to ban asbestos because it causes heinous diseases and death, but the state also must protect the right of investors to have a stable environment. And so a sensible amount of compensation has arrived at, and that's the end of it. In complete contrariness to this, the three arbitrators sitting on the tribunal of arbitration at an investor court system have no right or duty to use the irish constitution the european charter of fundamental rights any irish or european judicial precedent nor are they empowered to or required to interpret any judgment ruling law or regulation of the irish state or the eu itself what they are empowered to do is to award compensation to aggrieved investors who feel that their investments have been expropriated by the state through the state's actions. And so let's get back to that moment of weighing up and balancing what the judges of Europe are forced to do in a situation like this. The one thing that Irish and European judges won't do is work out how much profit per year the investor will lose and then amortize that into perpetuity and force the state to pay all that money plus the lost investment. And that is the function, it is the primary function of the investor court system, or more correctly, investor state dispute settlement mechanism. And so it is explicitly and deliberately designed to elevate the investor to a sovereign level where they're not challenging the right of the state to regulate, no. What they're challenging is the right of the state to do anything that even mildly interferes in the future unearned profit. So the main claim for compensation and the main reason why an investor would go to the investor court system instead of the high court or the European Court of Justice is specifically because they want to seek their compensation of every Euro of profit for every year into perpetuity that they're going to lose as a result of obeying the new laws, regulations, or abiding by licensing decisions. And that, Shauna, is the crux of the issue.
1: I feel like I could ask you a million questions about not just CETA but ICS as well. But unfortunately, we only have a certain amount of time for today's podcast. But I was wondering, is there anything final you want to say to listeners for them to understand more about CETA or ICS?
0: I would say, check out the Kolov, -M M H Kolov Trade Justice Group Fact Checker on the web. And I would say check out the Transnational Institute, TNI, and the Corporate Europe Observatory, CEO, yeah, if anybody would like to get a whole bag of academic research delivered to their inbox, feel free. You'll find me on my email at barry.finnegan at Griffith, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H dot I-E, and there's three N's in Finnegan. But listen, there's plenty of websites that, that have the facts on and and so you'll, you'll anyone who researches this will see that the marketing documents from the Department of Foreign Affairs, Finnefall Fáil, and the senior members of the Green Party, And the European Commission will see that most of the issues that I've raised here, the other other key point we have to remember is that in terms of sustainability, labor rights and environmental protection, each of which have a new chapter in CETA, which is fantastic. It's a wonderful development. It demonstrates the progressive aspects of the European Union trade policy. And it's great to see it. But they only protect labor and environmental protection is that if you try to reduce labor and environmental protection in order to stimulate your trade to the disadvantage of a Canadian investor. That's illegal, but you're perfectly permitted to reduce environmental and labour protections as long as it's not designed explicitly to advantage your businesses over and above Canadian businesses.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and to our listeners as well. I just want to thank you again.
0: Thanks very much, Shauna, for the opportunity.
1: Thank you for listening to the Double Non-Politics Review podcast on CETA and the investor court systems. This was Shauna Bannon Ward, and I wish you a very pleasant day. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at LPR or on our website, DublinLPR.ie. This podcast will also be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's FM. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie.